Hello, everyone. I'm Esther Pansloan, the head of Partnership Policy and Communications at the United Nations Capital Development Fund, UNCDF. I'm very happy to be joined today by Peter Lupoff, CEO of Net Impact, a member organization of over 150,000 people with a mission to inspire and equip emerging leaders to bring positive change to the world's most pressing challenges. Peter, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Nice to be here. Good to talk to you, Esther. So why don't we start by telling us a little bit about your background? How did you come to this post? I started out, you know, 25 plus years, a traditional investor, grew up working on Wall Street, became ultimately an analyst, an investor uh, with a particular strategy, event-driven. And I would, you know, people will describe that kind of work as traditional investing. I've now taken to calling it amoral investing. I don't mean anything, you know, negative in that. Just simply that the notion of social environmental impact, the notion of responsibility wasn't part of the strategy. It was just about maximizing profitability. And for me, buying companies cheap on an intrinsic basis that had events that could unlock value. Over time, however, I went to work for some real luminaries in the investing space, Marty Whitman of Third Avenue Fund, Izzy Englander of Millennium, and then uh, ultimately built a firm of my own, Tiburon Capital. And when I sold that firm, I sold it to a consultant's firm and became their chief investment officer. I became aware that our clients were largely retirees. We had state and union pension and endowments that we were managing and advising. And remember being at a healthcare workers union holiday party where an elderly woman came to me and thanked me for making returns for her that helped uh, uh, send her kid to college. And I thought, wow, this is very different than investing for a world-weary Swiss family office that is angry that I missed my benchmark by a basis point. And that made me start thinking about the importance of investing for broader benefit than just making wealthy wealthier. And around the same time, my partner, my wife, Kelly, challenged us to think about the ways in which we could be better models for our young son than Max, who is now 14. And I thought, you know, the knee-jerk reaction was philanthropy, because that's what we're taught and what we know. But as I started to do work around certain philanthropic activities, I realized that in many instances there were solutions that might be better solutions that were market oriented. And that was my training and my background. It was a skill set I could bring. And I saw one in particular with a, a recidivism project that I was doing with entrepreneurs in training that were previously incarcerated and realized, well, if we bought these businesses and then employed our entrepreneurs in training and allowed them to take equity, that's a better outcome. And we take a lower return characteristic, but we have a great social impact here. And I thought, well, that can't be a new idea. And I read about impact investing and I had the eureka moment. Of course, I had it, not unlike many people do, just a bunch of years later than many people had it. But once I realized that, I saw the light and realized that all investing had impact, I, uh, I tore into that. That became the only way I wanted to invest and formed a family office for the sole purpose uh, with a 100% impact focused lens. And 
in order to really get up to speed, started teaching. I was teaching up at Yale School of Management and I began to offer an impact investing lecture series, which became a program there. I eventually took that to Fordham and in my experiences at Yale School of Management and then at Fordham, I came to know net impact chapters on campus. Net impact is 150,000 current chapter members worldwide, mostly undergrad, graduate schools, and professional chapters in every major city around the world with a mission to inspire and equip and now activate emerging leaders for a just and sustainable world. And so it was, it was through my experiences with my students, many of whom were Net Impact chapter members, and then advising them on some of the challenges I'd participate in, that Net Impact came to know of me. Net Impact Central, their home office in Oakland, California, was going through a CEO search last spring and went through that process, decided that I had an opportunity to do something uh, really interesting there and uh, accepted the role as CEO uh, at Net Impact. Great. Thank you so much for walking us through that. I think it's really interesting looking at this space, right? Because we've been hearing from activists, for example, that it's important to reallocate funds towards social issues for many years. But to have someone who is an investor and trained as an investor and understanding the fiduciary pressures that our investors are under, saying that same message is quite a different impact. So uh, we are happy at UNCBF that your family office became our first family office partner. And we are very glad to recognize the terrific role you've played in growing the investment industry, both with your teaching and your activism now in your leadership role at Net Impact. So what we really wanted to talk about today in the context of everything that's happening in the United States is the racial wealth gap in the United States. This is a corollary issue to the unrest that, that we've been seeing and the fight for racial justice and equal rights. I wonder if you could walk us through what is the racial wealth gap in the United States and why does it exist? This is uh, one of the most important issues to us as a family office and campus, our community, our net impact community. It's sort of top of mind, especially given the spate of circumstances this spring here in the U.S. around social justice and racial equity. So the wealth gap in America has been a function of black folk being shortchanged many of the materials necessary to build wealth here. There's been a failure to provide some of the most basic things that privileged households have been able to benefit from. If you were to take a look at the average wealth of families uh, in America, white families have perhaps as much as 10 times the wealth of black families. And then if you were to look at the median, it's even more troubling because I think the number is roughly 12 to 15 times the wealth exists in white households as in black households. In fact, at the median, more than one in four black households have zero or negative net worth compared with uh, white households, probably 10 times the number, uh, in fact, some of that reason is because two-thirds of all wealth in America is tied up in home equity. And 
there has been a very difficult past in the United States that, in fact, one of the important books I think I'd like to talk to people about is Richard Rothstein's book, The Color of Law, which documents the, in fact, de jure uh, limitations on people of color to own homes in America dating back to the GI Bill. So if two-thirds of wealth in America is derived from home ownership and home ownership was restricted based on lack of access to mortgage capital or the redlining that occurred, the limitations on people of color that could afford homes, their inability to buy homes because of local ordinance or community ordinances made it impossible for families to descend that wealth into future generations. So, you know, I think this is sort of the root of it. And then over time, it's a theme for net impact this year, the notion of reimagining capitalism. I'm a capitalist. I believe in democracy. I believe in capitalism, but it is the cleanest shirt in the dirty laundry. And when over time we've decided to push profits as high as we can and reduce expenses to their lowest possible way and call that the objective capitalism, then that also includes tax dollars. And we've decided to completely remove any social safety net that would create reasonable and good education or health systems, access to, to housing. So we, we are dealing with a backward-looking problem that is very hard for anyone to own up to. How we break the issue of wealth gap in America is the, probably the most perplexing problem that we face. Thanks for that analysis, Peter. And we know it is part of a systemic and structural issue. It's striking to hear talk, uh, to hear the echoes of all the issues we deal with emerging markets. We are talking exactly about enabling environments that leave certain parts of the populations behind. We talk about the population that are underserved, more vulnerable, not reached by service, good services. And it's startling and quite stark to realize that exactly those same issues apply in the United States. So if we try to break down kind of the structural complexity of it, what would you say are some of the biggest factors in wealth creation individuals can impact? And what are the structural factors that need to change in order to increase minority wealth? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting problem because when you want to talk to people civilly about fixing the problem, Racist is a very difficult topic in America, and I think that it's rooted in people not willing to accept the privilege that got them to where they are and the unpleasantness of having to reflect on what, what existed and that people were hurt by it. Also, I'll use this expression, and I'd like it not to be taken as being flippant, but there is a mythology of America. And when we talk about people that aren't part of the success story of America because of an institutional racism and a jure discrimination, I think it's a knee-jerk reaction maybe to either shut down on that or, in fact, to deflect or to be divisive about it. So it's a very hard conversation to have because 
The way that many would like to talk about it today is in the framework of diversity and inclusion, right? Diversity and inclusion are concepts that are about time zero and looking forward. But what we're talking about is equity. And in order to achieve equity, you have to look back and you have to redress wrongs. So diversity and inclusion may have businesses committed to trying to create filling senior level positions with African-American candidates or people of color or women and paying them radically. And even in those two instances, which is time zero and looking forward, we're not there yet, right? Scant women on the board, scant people of color on the board, and women and people of color are disproportionately underpaid relative to their white peers for the same work. So it starts with a paycheck, but then it requires also the ability to put that money away. And it is sort of in the descendants of wealth that we give people the opportunity to take care of family when they're going through economic low points where there's unemployment or if, if people want to take risks to start businesses. I think that many entrepreneurs, white entrepreneurs that access capital more easily by virtue of where they've gone to school and who they know and their friends and their family or draw upon friends and family rounds of investment to get businesses started Think that is, was really hard work to get there, but think of it if the color of your skin and the community that you grew up in because of their position in a racist time and place in America makes it impossible for you to draw on friends and family. So these are the circumstances and getting people to recognize that may get us to the place where we can get at time zero businesses to in fact pay people radically for the same work regardless of their ethnicity, to actively seek to promote people of color and women into senior positions, to come to the place where they recognize that the diversity of opinion and backgrounds leads to better decision-making and outcomes. There's been a lot of work on this that it's not the point of this discussion to bring forward, but there's a lot of work that would suggest that the best decisions will be made by more diverse groups. So it's in everybody's interest. So that helps with time zero. I think forward looking between there being the leaning in first with impact investors, those that are seeking demonstrable social or environmental impact along with a financial return, the leaning in to allocate capital to projects, to funds, to startups, to social entrepreneurs that may be black folk or women is a start. And then secondly, to not think of that as a reason to penalize them. This is a more subtle point, but it's something that I've seen in the capital markets that there will be money that says, oh, I don't bring a racist notion to how I allocate capital. But if you're a person of color that lacks access to capital and I can price your company at one-time revenue instead of 10 times revenue, I'll give you your money at one-time revenue. It's sort of beholden on the investor 
to engage their investees in ways that are also reasonable and responsible. Which leads yeah. to sort of one other point I want to make, Esther, about this, that I think one of the frontier places where we're going in impact investing is also recognizing the beneficiary, the extractive nature of your money with the beneficiary. That sounds kind of incendiary, right? So we're trying to do good with money. Are you saying that we shouldn't make a return? It's like, no, we're supposed to try to make a return, but there may be ways to include greater equitability in that return characteristic. It really gets to the place where you have to ask the question too, how much is enough when you put money to work to achieve, what would you do to achieve parity and to narrow this racial wealth gap? What would you do if you could do that with money? What return? In fact, would you take a negative return? I think there are things we could do in America. You know, you and I talked the other day about the interesting article about where would GDP be in America if there was true parity and not a racial wealth gap in America? Yeah, I'm looking at that statistic now. So they say that the impact of the racial wealth gap in the United States, this is from a McKinsey study in 2019, is between one and one and a half trillion dollars between 2019 and 2028, which is equivalent to of 4.6% of projected GDP in 2028. I mean, that's a lot of money. Yeah. To follow up on your point, Peter, I think it's great to to call out the fact that, yeah, if you're an investor, do you have to be a predatory investor, right? Do you have to get the best deal out of every transaction, especially when you're dealing with people who are not on the same level as you, right? We've talked with investors and I love when they're like, oh, I don't see race or gender. I just go on the best deal. But you're holding everyone to the same standards, right? Access to finance, length of... Um, track record, assets under management, and all of those things, as you've really rightly pointed out, are affected by race and gender. So it's facetious to say, I just choose the best deal, or I just choose the best person. If I could make one comment on that, I love that story because when I hear people talk about that we're having difficulty filling these senior seats and that we have a search, like, so you've got a bunch of old white men that are mediocre. Why does the very next one have to be the unicorn that is sort of the black champion in all ways, the black female champion in all ways? Why can't he or she suck as much as the rest of your board? <laughs> Let's just, you, you set the standard where you set it. So, you know, it seems like it's a really low bar. Why again does, why then again does a woman or a person of color need to be so much better to get that rarefied first seat beside a bunch of mediocre, you know, established board members or uh, senior management? Yeah, because they're the power structure. And I think, you know, women have heard this and minorities have heard this from their parents from the beginning, right? You're going to have to be better to get the same chance. So I think that's a, a sad fact of the way things are, but not of how they need to stay. And the critical impact, of course, of getting diversity on your board is that once you have one person there, it's easier to bring in others. And I think the tipping point is around three, right? That if you have three women on a board, then they're not, you know, there's not one person representing the whole race or gender. It's not just two, one supporting the other. You have three, and then that's enough to kind of tip the level of discussions and, and move it into a different space. Great. So then... Given your position in the impact industry, being really, really a pioneer and kind of helping to shape it and move it, where do you think it will go 
especially given all this new impetus and passion and excitement from young people. $50 trillion changes hands intergenerationally over the next 20 years. And to a demographic that if you read those psychographics, first to women and then to next gen, and both women and next gen care how money is made, not just that money is made. One in every $3 worldwide right now invests through a responsibility lens, and that is actually hastening in this time of COVID. And we're beginning to see top quartile ESG companies outperforming bottom quartile companies. This is the direction things are going in. I'll give you a few other statistics. 85% of our um, net impact member demographic will download a sustainability report of a company before they take an interview and will raise that report in that interview. So I think that investing for good and business as a force for good, those are two different things. Businesses are being nudged in that direction with 191 CEOs having signed the business roundtables redefinition of a corporation to more broadly care about stakeholders, not just shareholders, but employees, community where they operate, supply chain, and consumers. And money is moving in this direction. And I think so valuations will be more than just the NAV as a function of future cash flows of companies or enterprises. So I think that this is becoming the way people think is the right and equitable way to invest. There are some that would even argue it is a breach of your fiduciary responsibility to not consider how the way you're investing might be damaging to people and planet. That's beginning to be discussed amongst foundations. Uh, CalPERS made that statement, I think, six months ago. So I think it's the direction where things are going. And we have a next-gen community that cares about how they foment this more just and sustainable world. You do it through being more civically engaged and holding your sovereign accountable for creating a level playing field. Capitalism is only going to work if it isn't crony capitalism. And so long as the rules of the game are fair, that means businesses shouldn't be working to change law to their benefit. They should be thinking collaboratively with government about what's fair and equitable. Shareholders need to be more active and hold them to that. And private capital can help drive that, but it's not alone. You know, at Net Impact, we talk about the idea of building the whole person, like helping build the whole person. The whole person can put money to work in ways that can create measurable social and environmental impact, that can nudge business to be a force for good. The whole person can sit in a seat at a company and make sure that they walk that talk. And as they get older and become, you know, captains of industry, stewards of money, they can shepherd their assets, they can shepherd their organizations to be better, to do better. And in a lot of ways, it is beholden on on all of us and all of our next-gen member network when they are in those positions already to continue to assert influence on government to make a fair and equitable system. So I've seen a world that, and I participated in a world, building a world that 
has been somewhat unjust and has frayed around the edges. And I am excited every morning, however, about when I wake up, I'm excited that I have a community that I work with that I think we can help provide the tools to drive better outcomes. But at the end of the day, there's this expression I like to quote, you know, nothing about us without us. I think across the board in business, in investing, in civic engagement, the idea that decisions are made that don't include broad constituencies is becoming archaic. And there is a generation that will insist on being heard and having influence. And that, that will be, that's a really positive thing. So, Peter, we've talked about, on a personal level, our families and how we deal with the desire of young people, in this case, your young son, to take part in the current protests, especially in the United States. It feels like the most pressing civil rights issue of our time. What would you say to all the young people in your network who are around the world watching or participating or looking at these protests and wanting to make a difference in these issues? Yeah, things have just changed enormously. This is catalytic, what is happening It's amazing to see protests going on around the world, not just in Minneapolis or in in major cities in the U.S., but around the globe. And again, I think we're seeing how there's a generation that is catalyzed around equity and the inequity of the shootings of people of color of unarmed black people. It's hit home in a way that I think this time is really very meaningful. And I think for Net Impact, which has been largely CSR-centric, corporate social responsibility-centric, and then moved it around the sort of responsibility continuum, I call it, to be much more involved in social justice and racial equity, not just because it's where we want to go as an organization because it's reflective of where our community wants to go. It is now the single most important front and center, front of mind discussion that we're having. And we as an organization are leaning in on that and saying to our community, we have your back. We think that you should be as involved as you can be in this. And if that manifests in your desire to participate and protest, you should do that. We talk family. My partner, Kelly, is African-American. My son, Max, biracial, self-identifies as black. 14 years old, just turned 14. And while we're sheltering in place and trying to take care and be healthy given COVID, my son very desperately wants to be out and be engaged and be involved. And we're, on the one hand, very proud of him for his desire to be involved. And on the other hand, his parents really frightened for his health and well-being. But if he wants to go do that, I'll probably wind up going to do that with him. That's just something I think it's important to take your stand. And if people, young people feel the obligation, the interest in taking that stand now, They should, and we do have their back. And I think while we're a nonprofit and nonprofits are a tax entity, and one of the requirements to be a nonprofit is that you're not political organization or take political points of view, it is not freaking political 
to believe in racial equity and social justice. It's not political to activate our youthful community to participate in protest, nor to participate civically by getting out and voting. It's how all things work. And I think when we talk also about the idea of the whole person and helping our community be whole people, to be a whole person, you have to assert your rights. And I think I used the expression earlier, nothing about us without us. I think that's a mantra that we should all hold as sacred. That's the, one of the beautiful things about democracy is ported democracy. The mythology of America is that we have a voice and we can make a difference. I think we're in a time and place where we need to insist upon that and we need to be sure that the rules of the road are followed so that, so that all things fair and equitable and what the people want is what happens. So we have the backs of our community, we have the backs of all people, whether our community or their youth or not, to get out and to try to make a difference. Because if our, in fact, our organizational mission is to inspire, equip, activate emerging leaders for a just and sustainable world, you know, another expression I like to say is, if not us, who? And if not now, when? Thank you so much, Peter. And it's really striking how many parallels there are with the mission of the United Nations and the Sustainable Development Goals and the whole motto of the SDGs are, of course, leave no one behind and a focus on making sure that everyone has an equal chance to participate in a prosperous planet where people have rights and social environmental benefits and governance benefits are equally available to all. So thank you so much for your work with Net Impact and as a champion of these issues. And we look forward to supporting your efforts going forward. I always love talking with you, Esther. Thanks for your time. All right. Bye-bye.